Hello and welcome to Board Stupid, the podcast that loves talking tabletop board games, D&D and other awesome stuff. I'm Wayne. I'm Simon. Just a couple of nerds talking about the things that we love that are worth geeking out over. So Simon, are you ready? I am ready. Well, I'm ready. And if you guys are ready, let's dive into this week's episode. This week, we played Rising Sun. We played as a series where we talk about an epic board game that we played this week. And this week, it's the Katana Clashing, Ronin Hiring, Kami Worshipping, Political Maneuvering, Mythological Ancient Japan, Rising Sun. In this episode, we'll be diving into the things we liked and breaking down the elements that make it great. Because at the end of the day, we only play awesome games at Board Stupid. And for me at least, Rising Sun is epic in a way that's hard to describe. But we're going to do our best. The game was released in 2018, plays three to five players, um, plays in between 90 and 120 minutes, which is a little on the short side in my we experience. definitely exceeded that yesterday. Yeah. Uh, designed by Eric Lang. Uh, the principal art was by Edgar Skomorowski and Adrian Smith. Again, sorry, Edgar. The game was published by Come On Games, or Simon Games, of Blood Rage fame, the zombie side, um, the upcoming Ankh. And a variety of other. Yeah, you're excited for Ang, aren't you? Oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. Another Eric Lang. Um, yeah, it's going to be good stuff. Rising Sun is essentially an area control game set in legendary feudal Japan, where it's up to each player to lead their clan to victory, using politics to further your cause, negotiating to seek out the most profitable alliances at the table, worshipping the kami to gain their favour, recruiting epic monsters out of legend to help bolster your clan and then using your resources wisely um, in order to try and be victorious in battles, to try and claim territory. Let's start, as we always do, let's uh, talk about the components and the art design of Rising Sun. Um, and I think I've got fairly strong opinions about this, but I think everything, everyone that we've showed it to has been like, wow. Yeah, this is a supreme quality game. This is the top notch of any game we've reviewed so far. This is at the absolute zenith of design quality in my eyes. It really is. Everything is absolutely top-notch. And uh, probably it's worth um, noting that we are playing or we play and own the Kickstarter version as opposed to the retail version. So there are some differences in some of the components, which we'll go over briefly when we do, when we dive into them. But even the retail version is a super high quality. It's a, um, I suppose, we talked about Scythe and how great the components are and how that is a luxury-looking game. This is, I suppose, similarly luxurious, but in a different way. Yeah, it's it's more varied in its component pieces, uh, artwork and uh, cardstock, but yeah, very similarly high luxurious quality to it, for sure. Absolutely. Um, even just starting with the board. So we do have a traditional game board, um, which denotes essentially uh, a, a map of Japan or ancient Japan. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not uh, sort of historically or, or, or geographically like, accurate. Def- definitely not geographically accurate, but no, as you say, it's got the, the eight historical feudal Japan territories on there. So you've mm. got Kyoto, Edo, Hokkaido, and so on. Yeah. Um, all uh, brightly coloured for each region to denote those areas, uh, set atop a beautiful watercolour style uh, background. It's absolutely gorgeous. It almost looks like a canvas. Um, like I say, washed with this watercolour painting, really beautifully done. And the, the colours really pop as well. I mean, they weren't shy when it came to the colourisation in this game. 
yeah, they could have made it much more subtle in its design, made it more m- look more like it's very from the period. But what they've done, I think, is a good combination of that classic Japanese art style from the kind of 16, 1700s, uh, but then not shied away from saying this is a game it has a function and the the color set in there uh, even more so in the figurines is mm. is very bright and colorful which is, is nice to see yeah it's kind of like a hyper realized isn't it i guess as opposed to yeah like so you've got you could have two directions really either go the r- realistic or what they've done here which is that kind of hyper real almost bordering on comic book um but not quite reaching there yeah very i could colorful. see almost there being a, a super expensive version where they'd have like wooden carved pieces Ooh, and so on yeah. I mean, you'd have the subtleties of different uh wood colors in there so you'd be versus your oak versus your dark ash and so on but i think uh in all sensibility this combination is is very well done absolutely um, and again, with games of this ilk and of this high quality, um, the theming and the art design filters down through to the cards, through to all the various other elements of the game. Everything has this sort of uh, Japanese-style printing and Japanese-style art design. Um, from the dragons, koi, falling leaves, blossom, all, all of that stuff that you can... From, from every uh, uh, film set in Japan that you can imagine in ancient Japan, it's, it has those sort of elements themed through it. Yeah, and you've got some some Kenji dotted around. I assume they have a, a valid meaning. They're not just random, random kind of graphics yeah, yeah, script yeah, yeah, yeah. around. Um, yeah. But yeah, as you say, it, that that coordination and and theming is spread throughout all of the art pieces. Um, whether that be your player card, uh, individual tokens, all the way up to the board and so on. One of the defining features of Common games, and especially ones with with well, Common Eric Lang games at least are the quite spectacular minis. And I think a special mention has to go to, these are some of my favourites of any game I own. Yeah, you'll have heard us nerd out and freak over the Nemesis uh, minis. Yeah. I think these are possibly even more special than those. They're certainly more varied. You have, well, we've got a dozen, maybe even up up to 20 different um, monsters and Kami God yeah, figurines. Uh, figurines, and... as well as all of the player pieces. And even within the player pieces, there's not a single no, you uh, have... kind of repetitive mm. one. There's at least four different types I can think of within that. You've got your main guy, your kind of ne- next level guys, and then even in your general grunts, your soldier force, you've got multiple different character models in there. It's a spectacular level of detail. So yeah, each individual clan will have four different types of sculpt, which is amazing. So even your standard... Your standard Bushi, so the, the standard warrior in this game, you have a choice of two different sculpts, which is crazy. Phenomenal levels of detail. The molding is great. Um, the monsters, some of them are, are very large scale as well. I mean, it's a lot of plastic. Yeah, to the point they barely fit on the board. Yeah. We had <laughs> such a crowded map last night that we essentially had to nudge stuff off the edge of the border because there were two, if not three, of these giant kind of gaiju monsters on the board yeah. <laughs> as well as about 15 foot troops so the the territory was just super heavy loaded super crammed it, if as i do you like taking photos of the action as you go then uh, you get some awesome photos out of it as well you really do it helps create that epic scale effect when you're watching it especially when you get through to the third season of the game which will explain later how we play um when things are really ramped up and like you say it's really crammed on the board it looks like it's about to kick off yeah yeah and it, it it builds throughout each season so you 
as you work out what territories you want to fight over, you slowly move your troops in and it goes from two or three per player at most up to, as I say, five, six, seven Getting pieces per there. player. So mm. if you've got a four player on, as we did yesterday, it's potentially 20 pieces or more all in this one territory because that's the one that everybody wants. You also have other things to represent your stronghold. So you have strongholds in the game, which will use to recruit your forces to. And in our version of the game, in the Kickstarter edition, they are these amazing little Pagoda-style um, sculpts. Yeah, the, the classic kind of square temple design with the, the sharp-angled roofs. And they very satisfactorily stack on top of each other to create these Pagoda Towers. I said Pagoda. Um, with one exception being the Turtle Clan. Um, there's six, I think six main clans to choose from in the game. Yeah, in the base game, yeah. Um, one of them, the Turtle Clan, is actually a moving fortress. So it's a similar pagoda model, but it's actually on a massive war turtle. Which is amazing. Uh, which allows <laughs> you to move it across the board. It was the first one I, I saw and chose when I first played this game. There was no way I wasn't being the giant, the giant turtles, turtle yeah. moving, <laughs> moving around the board. 100%. Other elements that you have in this game, you have these very satisfying political mandate tiles, which will use to essentially generate the engine of the game. And... I think you're going to need to hear this, I'll be honest. Yeah, they're uh, somewhere between a domino and a mahjong tile. They're a very heavy resin. Oh, yeah. That's such a satisfying noise. It really is, yeah. They are beautiful. Um, the card stock for some of the other tiles in the game are nice and thick, satisfyingly so. Nothing feels flimsy. No, there's nothing flimsy about this. And it's all very, again, detailed um, beautifully colorized and some of the artwork on it is massively evocative again of the era and the the style of feudal game that you're in um, very menacing looking creatures as well i find very which, some of them are absolutely disgusting yeah. um, when you can pick up either the art card or the physical model as we have and just mm. go oh god that's, i don't want to fight that <laughs> <laughs> that is terrifying that's, that's a sign of a good I good think, bit of design for me. Yeah, for sure. I think one we picked up last night, um, I looked at it closely and noticed it had a hat made of skulls. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Of course it did. Yeah, there's another one that I'd not seen before that was a, a coiled serpent. And this, this thing's two to three inches tall. Very, very cleanly, either 3D printed or moulded. I'm not entirely sure which. Um, but then it had a head of a human. It almost looked like uh, the girl from The Ring, just oh, his lank hair. So creepy. Creepy faces. Oh, so cool. It's great. Yeah, you have um, plastic coins as well, which will denote a currency in the game, which will use uh, for fighting and for purchasing upgrades for your clan. You have your honor tracker and your point tracker, which are basically in the color of your clan, again, a small plastic token. And then you have small plastic flags, which will denote which areas and which regions of Japan will go to war that season. Finally, I guess you have these screens. So um, fighting in this game is quite unusual. It's done in a, on a blind bidding system. So in order to hide what you're bidding on, you have this screen. Let's talk about the core mechanics of the game, Simon. How do you win Rising Sun? I don't know, <laughs> because I did yesterday, and I am not sure how I did it. Um, it's, a, it's a victory point uh, tracking system. Uh, you can earn these throughout the game, and then, as often is the case with victory point games, there are bonuses to be earned at the end again, based on various criteria, which are many and varied. It's not a case of all-out war. You can be very political about it. Mm. Um, the honour system comes very heavily into that, and you actually uh, sometimes win more by effectively losing battles, mm -hmm. which I think is how I managed it yesterday, although yeah, I'm still is. not entirely <laughs> sure how. I felt like I was losing the entire game because none of the battles I entered 
did I feel like I was in the right position for or successfully? And I think I only won maybe three out mm -hmm. of the dozen that I was in. Mm -hmm. But by virtue of losing them and gaining honor and victory points, mm -hmm. weirdly, you earn victory points by losing battles if you have the right setup. Uh, I ended up with the, the biggest bonus at the end and mm -hmm. somehow jumped the track. As Simon says, a victory point based game, there are two main tracks, the victory points track and the honor track, and they both um, sort of, uh, they're, they're, they're kind of separate systems, but they, they have interplay during ver some of the other mechanisms that are in play in the game. I, I've been trying to think how I could possibly explain this game. This and game is, is so hard to describe. It is by far, by far the hardest game to describe the mechanics of, and which is why I struggle with it so much Let's to, take it to enjoy the playment of. Let's go start from the beginning then. So the very beginning, the first thing that you do every season. So the game is played over three seasons, spring, summer, and autumn, which get progressively more intense. And the first thing that you do each season is you, is you negotiate your alliances. Yeah, so depending on how many players, it tends to, I suppose, work best with an even number because it means you can make an even number of alliances. It doesn't leave anybody out. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you can bargain and it is very much a conversation and a, almost a bartering if you've got the coin for it. Everyone mm -hmm. starts with a, a varying degree based on your clan. You can pay someone to be in an alliance. You can say that, you know, I'm going to look for these areas to control. You can mm -hmm. go over there and re very much negotiate, as I suppose the old clan leaders may well have done. Yeah. I will form this alliance with you if you sod off back to where you were. Yeah, as this beneficial alliance. I, I won't yeah. come east, you don't come west. west. Yeah, we'll, exactly. Um, and work out alliances that way. We'll split Japan between us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you will make those negotiations sometimes based on player order. So, Because when your ally does an action, you'll get a benefit. So if someone's going first... If you're last at the table to in turn order, it would normally sort of benefit you to try and get that first player's alliance because then as soon as they do something, you get a bonus. Yeah, there's a lot of benefit to be gained from from those alliances. So it's, it's rare, although it is possible to play without that. You can, yeah. Um, but I think I've always set up an alliance. And normally if I'm not involved in... There's always someone, normally Wayne, who who starts the bartering and, and tries to convince someone or otherwise uh, offer out his services as a strong position. The the remaining parties will then tend to team up, just from a safety a, a protection, yeah, for protection purposes. Um, other reasons why you might want to team up and, and form an alliance with another clan is you um, they have a particular player power that you feel is either threatening or useful for you, and that's what I think is. One of the most amazing and interesting things about this game is each clan has a unique and completely game-breaking player power. They are, yeah, massively wide-ranging as well. Yeah. Um, from simple, uh, nothing costs you more than one coin, sometimes less than that if you get a, a discount after that, to the ability to move your troops literally anywhere on the board, which seems utterly, as you say, game-breaking. Mm. Um, I don't think I've played a game where I've not had my clan and send someone do some cool stuff and be like, man, I wish I could do that. Like, that's so cool. Well, like, yeah, as I said yesterday, every time we got to battle and you had a stack of coins which could also be warriors and I'm thinking, <laughs> well, how on earth is anyone ever going to win a fight? But it doesn't come down to that Just raw fight. power exactly. necessarily. As was proved. Absolutely, as was proved. Once your alliances are made, you'll then enter the political mandate phase and you have those very satisfying sounding tiles that we talked about earlier. There are two copies of each of the five political mandates that you can choose from in the sort of stack of ten uh, political mandate tiles. On your turn, you will draw four of those tiles, 
you'll look at them, you can look at them with your ally, you can discuss them, you can go outside the room and talk about them strategically, about which one you want to place. You'll pick one, you'll place it down in the uh, specific area of the board for political mandates, and then you'll enact its effect. You and your ally will then get an additional bonus effect. And that's another cool thing about this game. Whenever anyone plays a political mandate, everyone gets to do something. Yeah, that is fun. As you say, the, the person who plays it and their ally, if they have one, get extras on top of that, but everyone does get to perform a function every single round. So you never sat there going, oh, well, they got to do a thing. I didn't get to do a thing. It's just they got to do a thing and it's slightly better for them. As an example, um, and we'll go through these because these are basically the engine of the game, you can recruit. So everybody at the table will get to summon one figure, i.e. put a uh, warrior or uh, or a Shinto, um, or if they've got any monsters uh, in their, from their supply, to their strongholds. So you get to put um, a number of figures equal to the number of strongholds out on the map, putting one figure at each stronghold. But you and your ally, if, you were t- if you're the person that played the mandate, you get an extra one. That's an instant boost to the number of worries you can have. So if you're looking to control an area, you've got a stronghold in there. Instead of putting one warrior out, you can put two warriors out. So Correct. you can not immediately take over, but it allows you to creep that up quickly. So if you manage to somehow get both of the recruits for you and your ally, mm-hmm. you'll have two more players by the end of that season then potentially they will and we mentioned briefly the different types of the different types of player model so you have your bushi which is your standard warriors your daimyo who just sits on the map he's kind of like a bushi but can't be betrayed or taken hostage or have any other weird effects to him or as part of the recruit action instead of putting someone on the map you can send one of your priests up the mountain to go and pray to one of the gods yeah that's quite an interesting function you've got four gods sitting atop the mountain on the top of the board they vary by game uh, each have a different function and by having the highest uh, number of people serving that particular god at the end of uh, certain sections of the game you gain a bonus or a boon based on that some of them are as basic as you earn extra coin sometimes you'll be uh, offered extra warriors you mm-hmm. might be gifted the speed of a, a horse and be able to move more troops across the land others more effective uh, such as amaterasu will boost you to the very top of the honor trail and if you need to be the highest honor in the game um, there's various reasons why you'd want that then that's something that you'd want to focus on Mm. so you can send maybe one priest up an ally or other an opponent might then also send a second uh, a priest up so you're in competition you're both there showing your servitude so what you'll then want to do is send another priest up to make sure you get to that mm. highest ranking so when it comes to the the judgment point which mm. is every three turns mm. uh, you'll get the boon based on that and it's kind of a microcosm of the larger map because it's still force wins so you still whoever has the most force on the cami gets the benefit much in the same way as everyone who, whoever has the most force in an area at the end of a battle wins the province so that's uh to recruit either to put your players on the map or to go up to the mountain and pray um, and then you have Marshall. So to Marshall, you get to move any number of the figures that are on the map um, across one border or shipping route. But your ally and you, if you're the person that played the mandate, the bonus you get is you get to build another stronghold on the map. And having more strongholds out will always benefit you because when you do the recruit function, you put out one character for each stronghold you have. So mm-hmm. if you get them in the right order, you marshal first, you build a stronghold 
and then your ally can put out the recruit token, mm-hmm. you get extra people out on the board every single time. Which I think is what happened last night. I think either, you should, I can't remember who was my first ally, I think it might have been Ant. Yep. I, I played Marshall to move some figures around and get a stronghold, and then he played recruit, and we immediately had a a, a, a troop um, a troop advantage on the on the map. Yeah, and, and then Chris and I managed to do the exact same combo. So we Luckily, felt yeah. we felt like we caught up, but it quite quite possibly we wouldn't have pulled yeah. either or both of those mandates out for our option on that turn. We True. might have picked up harvest or train Correct. or betray, any combination of those. As you shuffle the mandates, the mm. order is randomized. So so. It, it may have been possible that the Marshall and Recruit came back around for you and Ant again and you'd have had a massive literally advantage. double yeah. the number of strongholds and unit troops on the board. Alternatively, you could train. Now, when you play the train mandate, um, you get to buy one of the available season cards. And the season cards are essentially upgrades for your clan, which will help define a certain style of play and will give you various benefits and additions at the start of war phase or, well, for a whole variety of things. Yeah, they're they're massively varied. You say some are quite war-focused, whether that be buying a literal monster for your, your army to go into battle with it can be an upgrade for one of your existing character pieces. Um, there's some that become uh, much stronger in battle. Mm-hmm. It might be something a bit more passive or civil where you gain bonuses at the beginning of a war phase. You just get coin. You, mm-hmm. you manage to milk your uh, populace for all they're worth. Oh, or, yeah. or it yeah. might be something much more, um, as I say, kind of passive and civil where you just by existing you have benefits of movement or gaining victory points based on the number of people that die or win in a fight. Correct. So um, some of these are are legitimate victory conditions and they can really point you towards a certain play style. You could harvest. That political mandate gives everybody a coin, but you and your ally, you will get rewards based on the provinces where you have the most force. Every province on the Rising Sun map has an associated reward with it. It'll either be coins, ronin, victory points or a mixture of those three and depending on where you are and how many force you have in that province if you play the harvest mandate you get those rewards which can be extremely powerful if you play it at the right time yeah so the the amount of force you have on the board um all through the political mandate phase largely irrelevant until the actual war phase except for that harvest position where if you do, as Wayne says, have the most force in any given area and you play the harvest um, mandate, you gain that reward. So sometimes it does benefit you to put your forces into place early on. Other times you might want to kind of play the waiting game, settle where you are and then hopefully shift using the martial function much closer to the war phase and hoping that other players have, have... left their forces dispersed mm-hmm. or otherwise in a place that they don't expect you to be. Yeah, or potentially negotiating with your ally to use the harvest at the right time. And finally, um, you have the betray mandate. This one benefits you only. And essentially what happens is your alliance, if you have one, breaks. You lose honour. Um, we should probably explain honour is relative. So um, if you're at the top and you lose honour, you go down one. And then the person who was number two then goes up one. And when you portray and you lose your alliance, you get to replace any two figures from different players on the map with fig- two figures of your own, which can be very powerful uh, and generally gets played at the very end of the political mandate phase. Yeah, it's rare to do it any earlier than that because generally, as we say, you want to have that alliance for as long as you can because you get that benefit mm-hmm. through two, three, four turns. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's only when you get to that war stage where you really want to make sure you've got the most force. If that's the yeah, if that's what you want. If that's the angle you're going for, which generally is that you want the most force on the board, mm-hmm. um, then yeah, you want to have that option there. Not necessarily to ever play the betray card. Quite often alliances will last all the way up to and through that war. Yeah, often phase. they will. Um, often they will. But betray does give you that option if you think actually I will benefit most from breaking the alliance not worrying about the honor because it's not something that you're going to require mm-hmm. and then just making sure you've got yeah. the most figures out there or sometimes you may wish to tank it by one in order to activate a monster that you've got in a certain area so the betray might come into play for that reason or alternatively if you are in a province where you have an ally that you're competing with but he has more force than you normally you wouldn't fight for that province um, because your ally would just take it based on the amount of force but if you really want it, you could betray, break the alliance, and then you would fight. Yeah. Once you've played your political mandates, you then move on to the war phase of the game, which uh, some people love and some people hate. I know Simon isn't a particular massive fan of, the, of the, the war phase. And where I've read online, that's where people that don't like the game have the issue. And people that love the game, like myself, love that, that system. It's complex and is almost a different game to the rest of the game that you play, um, which I think is probably a legitimate criticism of it. But it is a blind bidding system where... On the other side of your player tile, where you've got your political mandates explanation, you have your war advantages. I honestly do just find this. It's, it's not that I don't understand what each one oh, means. Oh, you understand. It's yeah. incredibly clear. There are just so many variables. My little brain just gets fried every single time. Oh, no. Um, what I was trying to kind of explain my thoughts on this a little earlier to Wayne just before we started recording it's not, as with many other games, a simple fact of I have the most force in this area, yeah. so I will win. There are so many things that can happen before it gets to the counting of force. The One of the craziest of that is the ability to take a hostage. Yeah. That means if you've got, such as I did yesterday, some powerful monsters on there, they're worth two, three, four, maybe even five force within that fight. Mm-hmm. That if the bidding goes wrong in my against my favour, that really strong, powerful force might be removed from the playing field before we even get to the fight mm-hmm. because it's been taken hostage. For me, I'd like to argue that there should be some balancing system in there that maybe means um, either monsters can't be taken hostage full stop. And when you see the scale of the player models versus <laughs> these monsters... It does make me giggle. You know, it, uh, for a bit of a D&D reference, it'd be like taking a, a, an adult red dragon hostage. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You <laughs> might, you, unless, unless we're going incredibly mystical and they're managing to cast Dominate Monster yeah, and it fails its saving like that. throw. You know, yeah, it's, that's, I, yeah. I feel like there should be certain things that should just be allowed to exist. Um, but mm. I realise that one of the the key things for this game which is what tripped me up then is that what you have going in isn't necessarily what you get coming out um yeah. it is very confusing um so yeah it, I, I think you'd probably do a better job of explaining the the bidding system than i would but maybe oh, I'll, 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 add, I'll add in some uh yeah sure some um, anecdote maybe if i well we'll go through that. the war advantages and and how that works and so yeah essentially on the on the back of the political mandate tile you've got your war advantages again split into four as opposed to five sections they essentially get resolved in order so what you do at the beginning of the war phase when you have a fight against another player in your province in the same province you would put your screen up declare how much money and how many ronin that you have so you would both declare say for example i've got 10 coins and and three ronin and simon would say how many he's got 
then you would, in secret, put your coins on the various war advantages that you want to activate. What's important to note is you don't have to activate the war advantage if you don't want to, but you can put coins on it just to stop someone else activating it. So there is a way to block someone from doing something that might be disadvantageous uh, to you. Once you've put the, your coins on the war advantages that you want and the other person has done the same, you both reveal your screen at the same time. So you take your screen away and you see how much uh, coinage you've put on each of the war advantages. And whoever has the most with honor breaking ties, I think that's also important to note, this game is kind of built around making things tie yeah. um, with the honor system breaking them. You then see who's put the most coin on each war advantage and then uh, you resolve the effects from left to right. So starting with the first one. So the, the first one on there is seppuku. Um, so if you're looking at the, the board and you're fighting over any given province, say you're in Kyoto, you've got maybe three force in there, yeah. and Wayne's got six force in there. I might be sat there thinking, well, there's absolutely no way I can't hire enough Ronin to balance that force. I can't, take a, I can't hostage enough power away mm. from him to reduce his force down to me. So he's always going to win the fight. He's, there's no way I can meet the force. And your players would be slaughtered anyway. And they're going to be killed anyway. So you commit Sifuku, you kill all of your figures, which might seem like a weird option. Mm -hmm. But by doing that, you gain a victory point and an honor point for each character that you kill. Mm -hmm. Of course, Wayne, knowing that I might choose that option, because he, again, will look at the board and think, well, there's no way I can lose the fight. Mm-hmm. So what I might do is stop him committing Sifuku. I might outbid him on that uh -huh. because he's got more coins to start with. So he knows I've only got four coins. Mm -hmm. Wayne's got 10. So if he puts five coins down mm -hmm. on that one same option, he wins that bid. He mm -hmm. doesn't want to kill his own players, mm -hmm. but it means I can't take that option now. I've lost that bid. Correct. We would reveal. I would take that option away from Simon and he wouldn't be able to commit Sifuku. And then I would win the battle at that point. Interestingly enough, though, if Simon decided not to put any money on, knowing that I would probably outbid him anyway, the loser would put all of the coins that they bid into the supply, and the winner gives the coins that they've spent to the loser as war reparations. There's a sort of flow of money. So Simon, knowing that he could lose and knowing that I would outbid him for seppuku, could sort of pretend or make act like he's going to put some money on it in order to draw as much coin out of me as possible for a future fight that he might have. Yeah, you you do need to balance if you're in more than one fight, which you tend to be in, yeah. in any given season. You need to rationalise and, and ration your yeah. your expenditure. So anytime you put money on that board to bid on whatever item it is, that money is gone if you've lost, or rather if you win. Mm. You'll get yeah. some back if you lose, but either way generally your money dwindles as you fight, so you need to be careful what you're spending money on. Correct. Um, the next thing you could do is to take hostage, which we talked about, which is to remove a figure from the board. Um, you can't take a, a daimyo, which is your leader figure hostage, because they're, they're like the permanent figure, they are the, the leader. And you also steal a victory point from your opponent, which is quite mean. Um, it is, yeah. It's a small little attrition. It's, that... a, li it's a little fuck you. To, yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> um, and then you have the higher Ronin uh, war advantage, which I, I love, especially when combined with one of the clans in the game. You get to add Ronin tokens to your force. So during the political mandate phase, you might recruit Ronin in advance of the war. They will fight for you for a price. So you bid on higher Ronin, they'll come in. The amount of Ronin you've got 
equates to the number of force that you'll add. Uh, you'll throw them on the board, and then you'll take them back at the end of the battle to be used again in another battle. But they're only with you for that season. Yeah, so it's, it's a very strong position to be in, to have Ronin at the beginning, mm. even more so if you're the Koi clan, as Wayne was yesterday, yeah. where your money and Ronin are interchangeable at this stage. So if you've got a good stack of coin and you are the Koi clan, mm. You are in a very powerful position because you can afford to hire, or you can afford to bid high, yeah, and then still have enough power left to throw into each battle. So you might look at the actual player board and see fairly even battle where you've got roughly the equal number of force. Mm. But if you know someone's got a lot of Ronin, they can just slam all of that mm. in those hired mercenary uh, samurai that have no leader. Mm -hmm. They're just roaming, fighting for the highest bidder. Mm -hmm. um, and you can actually just slam them in and win battle after battle potentially so again yeah. you it's a constant thought process not just of how will i win this but how might my opponent I'm, win mm. and how can i kind of counteract that it gets even more confusing when you've got three or four players all fighting as we often did Correct. yesterday all over the same thing so you combined with the honor track for tie breaking and then how that gets manipulated during the game through seppuku and things like that yeah um so as we said the uh the honor track uh changes all the time well fairly quickly fairly and, and quite yeah. often so if one player committed seppuku they would gain honor for every single person so that would instantly affect the honor track yeah um so that that might then play and even if they're now out of the battle it might affect how the it might yeah it'll have a knock-on effect for the future battles in that season yeah um if that person they were fighting was relying on having the top honor because of various effects that their clan has well, they'll no longer work. Once you've done those three war advantages, and again, you resolve them in order, you then look at the battle outcome. Whoever has the most force after all of that wins the province, and they take the province token, and their opponent, all their figures, they get, they get killed. Uh, the winner, their figures remain on the map. The province tokens are in various uh, different colours, matching to the uh, province colours on the map. And at the end of the game, you'll get bonus points based on the different colours that you own. So the game encourages you to be wide-ranging with your sort of uh, invasion. Yeah, so rather than consolidating, building all your strongholds and always having all of your troops in one place, mm. as you say, it very much wants you to set sail or get on the march, mm. take over multiple different territories. Mm -hmm. uh, a minimum of three gets you a bonus of 10 victory points. Mm -hmm. Minimum of six gets you 20. Uh, yeah, or I was think it five to six, perhaps? Uh, I think it's... Uh, three to four and then five to six and then seven to eight okay yeah, yeah. so if, if you manage to get very much around the board and win lots of battles in lots of territories uh, you get a massive bonus yeah, at the bonus end of 30 end. victory points so close not often that we do it wayne got close with six yesterday mm. uh, i think i only had three for a bonus of 10 um, yeah but well worth doing and it it does make the game much more interesting because otherwise people just sit on where there. they are yeah exactly um, even a couple of times yesterday where Wayne essentially walked to the battle, there was no one opposing him. Uh, I think partly because he felt like such a strong proposition in yeah. battle. So I think that's we all thought, it. well, we can fight and die. And yes, that might gain us certain bonuses, but the bonuses that I was looking for wouldn't have come into play until uh, yeah. kind of the second season or third yeah. season. So. And then finally, at the end of the battle outcome, there's one more thing you can bid on, which is the Imperial Poets. So who gets to write the story of the victory? who gets to sing the songs about the battle. And if you bid the most on that, you'll get, again, a victory point for every figure killed. A perfectly legitimate strategy, which Simon enacted a couple of times, and my friend Ben enacted to great effect um, in a prior game, 
was to have certain clan powers that will give you victory points when your clan members die. Combine that with committing seppuku to get victory points. Combining it with imperial poets where you get victory points for every figure killed. And if you can get yourself in big battles and yeah, and a lot of your characters get killed and a lot of other characters get killed, you can generate a vast amount of get points through the game. Yeah, you, you essentially throw your warriors in knowing that you're going to lose, but you gain huge overall yeah. victory because of that. Absolutely. You have the most honourable death, I guess. You, a glorious death. <laughs> that um, essentially will play out three times uh, uh, for the game. Um, you'll play spring, summer and autumn, and then winter is essentially scoring. And you'll get your bonus victory points at the end based on the number and different colours of province tokens that you've managed to collect. Any clan upgrades that will give you victory points at the end of the game, such as the one that you got, which is extra victory points for all your strongholds. Yeah, so throughout each season, those seasonal upgrades that you can buy get more and more potent. And in Mm. the final season, autumn, there's some that for each stronghold you've got out on the board, you'll gain three victory points. Um, so it very much behooves you to pick that up first so when you when you're going through those mandates and you're thinking well would it be better for me to recruit and get out uh, some extra warriors on the board or would it be better for me to train and get the first pick of what's available as an upgrade i definitely went for the the latter option there and i thought well Mm. i'm going to pick up that bonus that's a guaranteed 12 victory points at the end of the game. So not only, yeah. do, not only do I get the bonus, it stopped someone else getting it first as well, which you have to be a bit of a, a bastard. I, I always uh, mm. poke at Wayne and call him a, a Machiavellian <laughs> um, with his, his twisted genius of, of wargaming and uh, being able to work out what's going on. <laughs> so we talked about how the game is played. And that went for a little while. It is a complex game with lots of multi-interlocking mechanisms. And again, you're not only playing the game, you're playing the players with the whole bluffing and blind bidding. That's what adds another layer of sort of depth and complexity. But let's talk about the... Does the game feel thematic to you? And do the mechanisms work with the theme? As with a number of other games we've played, the the theme is consistent and and deep in there. It Mm. it definitely feels like... very, Very literally feels like opposing clan leaders it does very much um, feel like you are opposing yeah, clan leaders. as much as it evokes that period and you've got that kind of elemental mm-hmm. mystical energy in there as well with the these gods looking down from on high and the demons yeah. creeping out of the sea and wrecking havoc during the war phase um yeah i do get a, a relatively strong feel for that yeah kind of politicized here's the um, vibe that i reserved get. Kind of, well you're looking shady do you look shady enough that i want to fight you or yeah. shady enough that i want to ally with you yeah. instead <laughs> so this might be the, the better option the vibe that i get from this game and this is what i think it really evokes for me is you feel like you are the leader of this clan you are making the big alliances at the table you are funding the guys that go out and fight i mean you're not on the battlefield you are like the the you know i mean the, you're the top of the table absolutely yeah. like and you are you know you're, you're sort of navigating this uh political landscape as your your troops and your and your population uh, work for you and it really gives you that feeling of uh, yeah sort of controlling your clan and your clan doing your bidding yeah absolutely that um and as we said at the top there's so, so much variation um in mm. ways that you can play it where even even in playing the same clan there's different ways you can achieve the end goal and um, you can kind of attack it from various different options so let's talk about the gameplay flow how do you feel about the turn length 
Because what I love about this game is that whole simultaneous acting. There's never a point where you're not doing something. Yeah, in theory, and I always, <laughs> as I've said in other reviews, I, I'm slow to decide on certain things. Um, I'm often looking for what I feel is the best option. And mm. I don't think my brain works well enough for this type of game to be able to see what that best option is. So sometimes mm. I just go with what seems most obvious, which in the long term sometimes plays out, in other terms it doesn't. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's a lot of constant cross-player interaction as well. Every yeah. single time I do something, it will affect what you immediately do next because I'll have changed yeah. my position either literally on the board or mm. in my standing on the honor rank. I suppose, so yeah, uh, it's not like an immediate, you do a thing, I do a thing, someone else does a thing. Like Scythe is very quick, as an example, as a counterpoint. Yeah. You do the thing, I immediately do the thing, and it, it goes around at a clip. Sometimes, say for example, you play Marshall, I could spend five minutes thinking, man, I didn't know you were going to play Marshall. Now I've got, I might want to move my troops. But where I move my troops means tactically the next person knows where I'm moving. Which means, and as you get to go last when you play that mandate, whatever everyone else does, you can kind of sit back and watch, and then make your your final move. So it can. Um, that's where the game will grind down. But that's purely because of its potential strategic depth. Yeah, it's and vast. It, and again, it ties back in, as you say, to feeling like that general mm. up on the hill in the tent, going, "Okay, well, what are they doing?" and wanting the time to monitor it, but at the same time needing to respond quickly enough. Yeah, that you aren't left in, in the in the trenches on your heels going oh damn yeah, yeah i did yeah, not yeah, react yeah. well enough to that last situation and then Correct. you kind of feel like you're scrambling on the related note as we always do so let's talk about complexity and where you put it on the scale because i think mechanically i don't feel like this is any more weighty than something like nemesis but i do think i would still weight it a four purely because of the number of interactions that you have and just the pure amount of crunch it's such an intense game yeah, this is definitely a, a four to a five for me. Right, um, yeah. There's no, as you say, the the flat conceptual understanding of how things work. Yeah, what yeah. this does, this this does this. This reward will give you this. Mm -hmm. That's fine. That's all very easily understood. Mm -hmm. It's that interaction and all of the malleability and second guessing, third guessing, mm. double bluffing that makes it super complicated and complex as a game to actually play. That's not a bad thing overall. It just doesn't sit well in my brain, unfortunately. So as I, yeah. as I say, I really enjoy it, or rather I really like it. Yeah. I think the game is fantastic. My brain just doesn't enjoy playing doesn't enjoy it, enjoy playing it. That's fair enough. It's like when we said we talked about Nemesis, how if you don't want a horribly intense claustrophobic experience of a board game and i appreciate some people won't mm. you won't enjoy nemesis that's a fact if you don't like that um strategic oh god what if i move my troops here and then this might happen then i need to worry about my honor track and what's going to happen here if you don't like that level of crunch um you won't like rising sun i think it's as simple as that i mean it's a area control game crossed with a war game crossed with a blind bidding um game and I, I, this is one of my favourite games of all time. I'll put that out there now. But even I can see it's not for everyone. It's an epic, it's an epic experience. I wish I did in, literally enjoy it more. As I say, even when mm. I somehow fluked, and I genuinely feel like I fluked my way to victory yesterday. Unfortunately, I didn't sit there feeling happy and enjoying the fact mm. I'd won. I, I was just bemused and, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe I was just that 
worn out from the thought process of it. We played, we were, well, I put on a three hour background music three, video, yeah, yeah. which ran out. So we did we, about three and a half hours. It I think was it a was. long game. So it, it's one to definitely consider. As I say, I, I can't fault it or floor it on its design and yeah. how it works. It's just not for you. Just not, not particularly for me, unfortunately. That's but I will much. happily sit there and play with the figures yeah. and look at the artwork all day. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess yeah, it is an incredibly complex game. Um, and I will say, and one of the, the things in its favour, in in light of that complexity, is you do live and die by your decisions. So, for example, when we talked about this earlier, I can point to three very specific things which lost me the game because Simon kept saying through the game, "Oh, Wayne's going to win because he's got this plan," and I did have a plan for sure. I, I, I like, I suppose, opposite to you, I like these games and they they work for me and how I process information. Yeah, you can you can step ahead a lot further than I feel like, and I I feel much more reactionary. Yeah, more tactical maybe as opposed to a strategic. Mm. Yeah, so uh, but I'm um, definitely in in that in that camp. And uh, there were three th- very specific things that, that did me over. Um, one was in the final season, not stretching myself far enough when I should have been a bit braver and sent my troops over to one more, just one more region and that would have clocked me the extra 10 points. Uh, Simon very cleverly taking away from me the extra bonuses for strongholds because I was 100% going to take it, but he took it from me and that would have given me an extra 12 victory yeah, points. Yeah, that, that was the one thing I felt I actively did as opposed to reactively did. <laughs> 100%. And then the other thing you actively did, um, which I had no hand in and couldn't stop, um, but the other players could but didn't, was utilising your clan ability for dying and uh, Imperial Poets to give you, generate a large number of points early on in the game, which was hard to catch. Uh, if any one of those other players that you were fighting against bid you, outbid you for that, then again that would have made that would have ended in my favour. So for me, those decisions are like clear as day in my in my mind as to how I lost that game. Mm. And I I think yeah, I think you do yourself a disservice. I think it was just fine. It was a interesting and for me a satisfying conclusion. And I'm I am satisfied that I could have made better decisions. And that's what I like about this game. If you can process it correctly, and there's a lot to process you will generally lead to victory. If you make a lapse in judgment, like I did, or you're not quick enough uh, on the ball to get the things that you want, then uh, you'll pay the price. So we talked about how you know, different games for different people, and this, uh, although you admire the game and appreciate what it does, it's not like you wouldn't choose to play it. But even given that, what do you like most about Rising Sun? As much as it frazzles my brain, I love the opportunity to play such a varied and complex Mm. system mm. Um, along with obviously as always the incredible artwork this An is an amazing design yet, yet another one of the the art uh, boxes that i would happily just have on the shelf in the front room as a piece of artwork display regardless you, of the yeah. content almost i think if you're a regular listener to board stupid you'll know that i have a collection of games that are very of a type and i like my big bold design games yeah. and, and it, it is gorgeous to look at um, but yeah, I think the opportunity to play the game in so many varied ways is one of the key defining factors of this game, which makes it really stand out as a, a great piece of design. Yeah, the um, different paths to victory uh, it is is quite interesting in this game, and um, it really can feel different every t- every single time you play it. What I love about this game is the war and the area control and the map is great and i love how that works but for me one of the biggest and chunkiest and most enjoyable pieces is the political maneuvering meandering rigging that goes on during the mandates phase even at the start of the tea ceremony because something we didn't mention in the game is everything is negotiable 
Mm. It doesn't matter what it is. If I want to marshal and move my troops, there's nothing stopping Simon saying, do you know what, Wayne, I'll give you two coin if instead of moving here, you move there. There's nothing you can do that. Or I'll give you some Ronin to not do these things. Yeah, we, we definitely had a bit of that yesterday. You wanted, yeah. you wanted the yellow terrain that I was already in. So I said, well, I'm going to move out. So ally with me. Uh-huh. You moved in, I moved out, and that was absolutely fine. We then ended up going to war anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I had another agreement with uh, Anthony, who um, needed some running in. I was like, well, I could do with some more money, because money and running is the same for me. So, And I needed money at that time for, for training in the future. So I was like, I'll toss you a couple of running, give me a couple of coin. Yeah. So that's great for me. Uh, help me get another clan upgrade. Yeah, the amount of political manoeuvring and the options that you have, as Simon says, with each mandate that you play, how the alliances come into that. And I especially love the honor system and how that interacts with the rest of the game. And we didn't really talk about it too much um, with honor, other than the fact that it's relative. But there are a, such a variety of clan effects, powers, and things in the game and resolutions that rely on your honor level that it's really amazing to play with that to your advantage having the maximum amount of honor when it comes to praying to the gods and getting those benefits, having the maximum amount of honor to enact some effect on your on your clan or deliberately tanking your honor so your oni, your big demons, can come and murder everything. Yeah, that's the route I initially wanted to go for yesterday. It'd be just go screw the honor, I'll be at the bottom. Yeah. I'll have demons which essentially power up by being a dishonorable player. They kind of revel in your... Yeah. disillusionment and go okay yeah I'm, I'm now worth three instead of one i'm now worth four instead of two yeah um it just didn't work out very well for me that way because for whatever reason i ended up further up the track than i wanted to be additionally to that i picked up an upgrade which made some of my characters my regular player pieces more powerful if i had the highest honor mm-hmm. but then i ended up kind of middle ranked so neither option worked for me i was either too high or too low depending on where i was um but again i think that's just one of those oversights that I hadn't worked out. I think what this, you know, kind of a, a bit of a cascade effect that if this happens, then that's yeah. good at the moment, but that will also affect this. I think uh, this uh, game definitely it rewards repeat play to understand really the, the levels and, and types of strategies you can run towards because mm. everybody in that game had some sort of tactical fluff or strategic fluff at some point, yeah, which cost them sure. something. I talked about mine, talked about yours, Chris had his, and Anthony was a new player, so naturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, I think, with repeat play, you would get more experience and understand the the meta. Thanks for listening to Board Stupid. Subscribe to us for updates and to get future episodes of the show delivered directly to your ear holes via your favourite podcast service. You can find us on facebook.com at facebook.com slash stupid board nerds. That's B-O-A-R-D. I have no honor at all in that. Uh, there is no honor in that spelling. Let it go, man. Let it uh, go. <laughs> on Twitter at board nerd again, B-O-A-R-D. We're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, uh, on Stitcher and at our home anchor.fm slash board stupid. Again, B-O-A-R-D. Wherever you can find your favorite podcast flavors, you can find board stupid. Do us a massive favor, share our podcast, give us a five-star review, give us a comment. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, do stick it in the comments below. We'd love to hear from you. Have you played Rising Sun? What did you think of it? What do you think of the somewhat controversial blind bidding system? I think it's incredible. Um, One of my favorite games of all time. I would happily play it any time. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again real soon. Sayonara, friends. Sayonara. Don't